0: The first degree. 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 The first degree. You see it on the news, you see it on the paper,
1: you see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
0: Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter, and this is part two of our Williams case. If you haven't listened to part one, this is going to be very, very confusing for you. So go back and listen to part one. Everybody on our Patreon is listening to this immediately after part one. And if you're not part of our Patreon, you know that we put all of our multi-parters right on Patreon so you can binge because we know you people love a binge.
2: Oh yes. In the past people have gotten very mad about the two parters, about us not (laughs) announcing it at the top of part one that it's gonna be a two parter. Because the cliffhanger, I mean, that's the stuff that really gets people's gears going. No one likes that.
0: No one likes that. With that little
2: mental prep at least.
0: I know. Or but that's why we now started putting them on Patreon. So if you really, really need to do it and you don't want to wait, jump on over there. That's right. All right, should we dive right in?
2: I think we should.
0: All right. Well, that's enough of
2: that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Last week, we introduced you to our first Becca, who at 12 years old walked into the Wyandotte County home of her grandparents – Wilbur and Wilma Williams, and found them on the floor of their home in August of 1999. They had been murdered. Within a matter of days, the culprits were identified as 14 year old twin brothers, Ronnell and Donnell Williams, and there's no relation to the victims despite these identical last names. At 16 years old, Ronnell and Donnell Williams were each convicted for the murders and began serving their time. Ronnell went to trial while Donnell took a plea. Becca's family was forever altered by the trauma of losing Wilbur and Wilma so violently. But at the very least, they had the comfort of knowing the perpetrators were behind bars. It all seemed to be very case closed. That was until a slew of accusations pointed at a retired Kansas City, Kansas detective named Roger Golubski came bubbling to the surface. Who was that detective? What did he do? And what does he have to do with the case of Wilbur and Wilma
0: Williams? So after Ronnell and Donnell's convictions, Ronell appealed his conviction in March of 2004. Essentially, he felt like he'd been treated unfairly during the trial, but that appeal ended up failing. So Ronell tried to appeal again in September of 2016. This time he accused Kansas of being unconstitutional. He claimed that under the Eighth Amendment, life imprisonment was considered cruel and unusual punishment for juvenile offenders. And for all intents and purposes, the courts agree that serving 50 years without the possibility of
2: parole is pretty much a life sentence. Right. And anytime you throw the word unconstitutional around, it's bound to get some legal steam. And that's what happened here. So Ronnell's appeal did make it through one appeals court, but ultimately, the Supreme Court of Kansas rejected it. They said that it would have been unconstitutional if Ronnell's age hadn't been considered during his sentencing, but his age was considered. So his appeal was denied, and he continued serving his prison sentence. And we also want to throw in that Ronnell had not shown any glimpse of remorse through this ordeal and through the appeals process as well. Zero.
0: Right. And it's one thing to throw yourself at the mercy of the court and apologize, take responsibility, and then allow the legal process to unfold properly if you were in fact wrong during the judicial
2: process. But that is not what
0: happened in this case. Right.
2: And it was in 2016, some years later, when retired Kansas City, Kansas detective Roger Galupski first came under public scrutiny. And this was for his work on the double murder case and ultimate conviction of a man named Lamonty McIntyre. So McIntyre, who had served more than two decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit, was freed in 2017 when the district attorney for Wyandotte County determined that he no longer had faith in the conviction and actually asked the judge to dismiss the case against McIntyre. So following his release, McIntyre and his mother filed a civil lawsuit in federal court against multiple officers, but focused the majority of their suit against the actions of one man, and that is former detective Roger Golubski.
0: Lamonti was just 17 years old when he was arrested for double murder, and it turns out that he had absolutely nothing to do with the crime. There was no physical evidence, no weapon, no motive, and no connection between Lamonti and the victims. Five alibi witnesses vouched for Lamonti's uninterrupted presence far from where the crime occurred. But after all that, he was still convicted. It was Lamonti's suit that first brought Roger Golubski's alleged
2: misdeeds out of the shadows and into public view. Right, and the suit claimed that Golubski used his badge to terrorize the Black community in Kansas City, Kansas for decades, further alleging that he sexually preyed upon vulnerable Black women, extorting them for sexual favors and coercing them into fabricating testimony to clear some of the cases he was investigating. In fact, in the suit, McIntyre's legal team included the initials of 73 women they say that Golubski victimized, based on interviews and other evidence that they collected. So I want to just break this down in layman's terms for all of you, everything we've just kind of said. To be clear, this means that Golubsky, while he was wearing a badge, was raping women, exploiting his power, and in certain cases gathering false testimony and witness statements to wrongfully implicate innocent people for the purpose of just closing cases um, and getting them off his list of cases he needed to solve. And he would also promise women that he would help them or their family members get out of legal trouble that they were in in exchange for sexual favors, etc. So there's a ton of coverage on the Lamonte McIntyre case. So we encourage you to delve in. If you want more information, it's super important. But for the purpose of this episode, we're pivoting back to the reason we're here, Wilma and Wilbur Williams. So what exactly does Roger Galupski have to do with their case? So after Lamonti McIntyre filed his
0: lawsuit, other Golubski accusers ended up coming forward. And one of those accusers was Ophelia Petaway Williams, the mother of Ronell and Donnell Williams. And according to court documents, her horrible experience with Roger Golubski began in August of 1999. And this is when Kansas City police officers served a warrant to search her home. After her 14-year-old sons, Ronnell and Donnell were named as the prime suspects in the murder of Wilbur and Wilma Williams. We told you about the search in last week's episode, but allegedly much more happened behind the scenes. So let's go back to August of 1999.
2: So we're going to give you a little reminder of the timeline here. So on August 3rd of 99, Wilbur and Wilma Williams, unrelated to Ophelia Williams or Ronnell and Donnell Williams, were found shot to death in their home. On August 5th, 99, police located the murder victim's burned-out 1992 Dodge Spirit in a parking lot. Two days later, on August 7th, a police informant identified four teenagers who had been in the car. And under police questioning, two of these teenagers said that they had gotten the car from Ronnell and Donnell Williams. On Saturday morning, August 8th, the police served the search warrant at the home of Ophelia Williams, their mother. And according to Ophelia's account obtained in court documents, Roger Golubski was among the officers that helped serve this warrant and was present that day.
0: Ophelia alleged under oath that this is when Golubski's abuse of power began, and this is what the court docs say verbatim. During the police search, Williams was ordered to sit with her 12-year-old daughter and Golubski in the front room of her home. Golubski was in plain clothes with a firearm visible in his hip holster. Williams asked questions trying to understand what was happening. Golubski, openly staring at Williams' body, gave no answers. Instead, Golubski told Williams that she was attractive, complimented her legs, and told her that he expected her 12-year-old to grow up and look just like her.
2: So during the search of Ophelia Williams' home, investigators would ultimately find shell casings that connected Ronell and Donnell to the double murder they were being investigated for. And Friends of the Twins, remember, had also fingered them as being the ones to give them the stolen vehicle that belonged to Wilbur and Wilma Williams. Ronnell and Donnell also ultimately confessed to each of their roles in this double murder many times. As a result, they were charged with the murders. And here's what happened next. So after Ronnell and Donnell were arrested, Ophelia said that Detective Roger Golubski approached her again and offered to help with her sons. The detective who was officially assigned to the lead on the double murder
0: case of Wilma and Wilbur Williams was a detective named Terry Ziegler, and this is relevant and important because Ziegler was Roger Golubski's investigative partner for many years, and Ziegler would eventually go on to become the police chief of the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department. In fact, Ophelia Williams has accused Ziegler, Golubski's former partner, of being outside her house in their police vehicle on one occasion when Golubski actually assaulted her. Ziegler has adamantly denied the accusation, saying he investigated the case involving her sons with a different detective because Golubski was an acting captain at the time. Right, so
2: Ziegler denies her claims. But either way, according to Ophelia, a few days after her sons were arrested, Golubski returned back to her residence. And during that encounter, he told her that he knew the DA and that he could pull some strings in their case. So he's dangling basically over a desperate mother, like, I can help get your sons out of trouble. After he said that, he allegedly made a sexual advance towards her, one that Ophelia rebuffed. And apparently that's when he raped her. After he was done, he said, I'll see you later. And he returned again and again to sexually assault Ophelia Williams. And because Glubski was a cop, Ophelia felt she had nowhere to turn. Ophelia
0: alleged that, for more than a year, Golubsky assaulted her on several occasions. According to court documents, he would force her into sexual acts while on duty and in his squad car. And according to the Kansas City Star, a lawyer asked Ophelia if she ever called the police on Golubsky, to which she responded, no, he was the police. And more alleged victims of Roger Golubsky have come forward. Ronnell and Donnell's mother, Ophelia Williams, has been one of the faces of and public-facing advocates for his victims, many of whom don't want to be identified. The allegations garnered a lot of press when Team Rock, the social justice arm of rapper Jay-Z's company, Rock Nation, took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post, calling the alleged police corruption in Kansas City one of the worst examples of abuse of power in U.S. history.
2: Let's be real. At the minimum, Roger Golubsky appears to be a dark cloud over countless lives in the Kansas City, Kansas community. And while he has not been prosecuted for any of the allegations he's facing, he was arrested by the FBI in September of 2022. And he was charged with six counts of depriving two individuals of their civil rights, along with sexual assault, kidnapping, and attempted kidnapping. So being indicted is certainly fucking something. But here's where things get messy. So Ophelia has given her account about the victimization she's suffered and the assaults she suffered at the hands of Roger Golubski. But she's also saying that Golubski framed Ronell and Donnell for the murder of Wilbur and Wilma Williams. This is a problem because there doesn't appear to be any evidence of those specific claims of framing. However, the claims that she was assaulted by Golubski... Definitely hold weight and appear to be true. In the case of Wilbur and Wilma's murder and how it melds with the alleged abuses perpetrated by Roger Golubsky, let's be real deal with many sensitive issues like corruption, systemic racism, and obviously this exploitation of power. We're dealing with a lot of injustice here, and we just want to put that up there. Like this is a sensitive episode and a lot of things are at play. But for now, we're going to pivot back to Ronell and Donnell.
0: So as a recap, Ronell and Donnell confessed to the murders back in 1999. Donnell pleaded guilty twice. Ronnell went to trial and was found guilty. And after they spent decades in jail, two cousins of Becca, our first degree, met Ronell and Donnell through a victim advocacy program. This program gives family members a chance to speak with, confront, and an opportunity to try to understand the perpetrators who have taken loved ones from them. Here's Becca.
1: There's that victim rights where you can, like, message them, and then they message you back. And then when you're ready, you go face-to-face. They did that.
2: So we have the audio of these meetings. Donnell and Ronell's meetings occurred separately, and we're going to play portions of what they said for you. So here's Ronell talking about the day that the murders occurred and what led them to hurting
0: two innocent people that day.
3: The whole day started. Uh, I was just walking with my brother to his girlfriend's house. And uh, I don't know, I just got the urge to shoot somebody. And uh, I told myself, the next people I see, I'm going to do it. And I told my brother, let
4: me see the gun. And he's like, for what? I'm like, give me the gun.
2: Here's Donnell.
4: Me and my brother walking down the street, I was supposed to take the gun to one of my friends or whatever. And uh, while we're walking, my brother's like, give me the gun so I go rob this old man. I'm like arguing with him, like I'm not going to give you my gun because of stupid stuff like that. We argue back and forth, argue back and forth for a while. And then uh, I get quiet and just give him the gun.
0: So according to Ronell, he noticed a house on the corner and there was a man outside. That man was obviously Wilbur Williams. Here's Ronell again.
3: So give me the gun. And we, uh, the house on the corner, we just get right past it, and I see them, and I take off money. Uh,
4: put the gun to his head, take me to go in the house.
2: Here's Donnell again.
4: I'd never seen a guy before until he gets over there to him, puts the gun to his head, takes him to the back of the house. And uh, the whole time he's doing all this, I'm just standing in the middle of the street. And finally, I run over there like, man, something could be happening to him, regardless to what's going on. So I go over there, and run to the back of the house. He's, like, taking him upstairs. Taking them up the stairs to the kitchen or whatever. And so uh, they get up to the top of the stairs, everybody just standing still.
2: The twins both describe Ronell taking the gun and forcing both Wilbur and Wilma into their own house at gunpoint. At the time, Wilma had been outside in her garden. Ronell describes holding them at gunpoint and encouraging his brother Donnell to run through the house and find things to steal. A couple
3: minutes passed by my brother come running up the stairs. Like, what are you doing? My man up and just go find something to get ready for
0: me. Donnell listens to his brother and starts searching the house.
4: So i get the car keys out the purse, a little money, put some money back, and I'm like, fuck it, I just burned out, get the car keys, put a car to the side of the house, and uh, I said don't wait for my brother.
2: According to both brothers' confessions, Donnell went and sat in the Williams car to wait for Ronnell, who was left alone inside with Bilber and Wilma Williams. Here's Ronell.
3: He goes outside, I'm standing at the door. Uh, the knife was on the table, It was a knife on the table. Uh, I grabbed the knife, I was going to stab him at first. I was like, nah. So I put the knife on the, you know, in front of him on the table. And he grabbed the knife. And I was walking back to my spot at the door. We had the knife, I'm like, man, put the knife down. And he mumbled something. So I shot out the window, and he put the knife in the sink. And I just shot him some more and I was going to leave and she was there and that's so why I shot her too.
0: Ronnell describes entertaining the idea of stabbing Wilbur before opting to shoot both he and Wilma. Becca's cousins were permitted to ask questions throughout this meeting, which is what you're going to hear next. I mean, like, what's what's going through
1: your
3: head? Like, nothing, um, you, I guess that's what we're trying to. That's nothing. My head is empty because I already know what I'm going to do. Uh, my mind is made up. It ain't nothing to think about. Uh, she, uh, I was just waiting on my brother to get out of the house mm-hmm. and uh, he was leaning up against the sink when I was shooting he was leaning up against the sink. Uh, when I stopped shooting and started shooting her, he was still leaning up against the sink. I don't know how he got on the floor, but he was facing the window. Did
1: grandma have her
3: hands over her face? Uh, one of them, when I first pointed the gun at her, she had a hand up and then she moved. And The first shot I shot it went in her cheek. Um, behind my right cheek. I saw a little blood coming out. And I was like, yeah. that's what I thought, like, man, this ain't nothing like movies. So I shot him some more
0: and he left. So let's pivot back to Donnell and his account of what happened after the shooting while he waited in the car for his brother.
4: And I'm like, fuck it. I just burned out, get the car keys, pull the car to the side of the house, and uh, I sit down waiting for my brother. It's like, after a while, he comes out, he's running through the, from the front door, he got the gun tucked in the shirt or whatever, so I scoot over to the passenger seat. I'm like, man, give me the gun, because I kind of figured what had happened already. So I look in the clips, on the bullet there.
2: According to Donnell, when Ronnell came bolting out of the house, he had already figured out what happened. And at this point in the conversation, Becca's cousins really just want to know why they did this. Well,
1: I always just kind of wanted to you know kind of what you were thinking, you know, like what would... I guess either make someone do this or you know why.
3: Okay. No, I, I didn't do it because of what I missed, and I just, it, um, I didn't do it because I was mad at anybody. I didn't do it. You know, I, I just wanted the experience. It's
1: like my mom's big thing that she keeps asking is
0: why in the head and face. That's her big thing. That's her
1: big problem is that the fact that you know head just wasn't in the arm or the chest. Or just one in the head boom, kind of like you see on TV? to kill him,
3: so I had to make sure they
1: But they weren't
3: when you left.
1: They no. laid there on the floor, drowning in their blood. You know, Which is not a fast process, because you know your lungs got filled up with that blood until you just, you can't breathe. I mean, gunshots made that happen.
0: Becca's cousins also wanted to know if they felt any remorse all these years later.
1: Do you think there's any regret or remorse,
3: or is it kind of just kind of is what it is? It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things, I can't regret it because I intended to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I knew what was going to happen, I knew everything here was going to happen. So, no, I don't regret it. Um, sorry, no, I don't regret it, but it is what it is.
1: So, there was, like, nothing you would change
2: that day. No, I did what I wanted to. Appreciate the violence. Playing devil's advocate, maybe this lack of remorse is a defense mechanism that one sinks into when there's a lifetime of prison in front of you. Maybe regret isn't conducive to survival behind bars. Either way... It's hard to imagine sitting across from someone speaking about the lives of your murdered loved ones, which they took with such a flat, apathetic affect.
0: Donnell holds a different position from his brother.
2: What do you feel like is your
1: accountability towards the crime? Like, what do you feel like you're accountable for when it comes to what happened to my grandparents? Uh,
4: now looking back on it, I see now that I probably could have stopped him, I mean, but I, it's like, uh, once I gave him the gun, I thought it was going to be a robbery, and that was it. Probably should never gave it to him in the beginning, but, uh, my accountability for it, I feel like, uh, that's something I could have done afterwards. Looking back on it, there's a lot of things I could have done. Call the police, got him some help, took the gun from him, let him move out the house first, anything. I, it's a number of things I could have done, so I feel like because I didn't do anything, I'm just as responsible as he is, to understand.
0: So Donnell does appear remorseful and doesn't attempt to evade blame by putting it solely on his brother as the trigger man.
4: A lot of remorse, a lot of regret. I'm only 14 at the time. My upbringing is a particular upbringing. Like, after things happen, I don't turn on my family. I don't call the police. I don't call the paramedics. So with me just knowing just that little... I'm only 14. I haven't been experienced a lot, so all I know is what I know. One thing I did know was that my brother was capable of killing somebody in cold blood. If I would have known that, I would have never given a gun in the first place.
2: It's all very difficult to listen to. And Becca, I know you're listening. I'm sorry you and your family have ever had to hear any of this. Speaking with Ronnell and Donnell face-to-face was obviously a complicated experience for Becca's family. You know, all of this is difficult. But then we have Donnell— who had previously apologized during his initial sentencing. And he does seem remorseful, as much as any murderer can seem truly remorseful, you know? But on the other hand, you've got Ronnell, who was not remorseful, as you heard yourselves. And Becca,
0: she couldn't bring herself to watch the videos of these meetings for a really long time.
2: I know my
1: cousin called him a monster, and he was like, yep, I'm a monster. Like, he, he has no remorse. He said he would do it again. He said that to my cousin. And the other one... The one that didn't kill them was like, I'm sorry. You know, like, there's nothing I can say, but I'm sorry. Like, he even said, like, when we were in court, and I remember when they were saying the everything, they said, do you have anything to say? And he was like, I'm sorry for what we did. But then the other one that killed them, they asked him, do you want to say anything to the family? And he just sat there cold.
2: It's important to underscore that the portions of these meetings with Ronell and Donnell that we played for you are small snippets of what were hours and hours of conversation. In addition to what you've heard, they talk about having really difficult childhoods. They talk about having strained relationships with their families. They talk about very young involvement within gang activity. And Ronald talks about how he never really felt loved before in his entire life. A lot of what they said reflects generations of systemic oppression and racism and the impact it has on marginalized communities, And how these things have impacted each of them. The sad truth is that Ronnell and Donnell are in fact guilty of murdering Wilbur and Wilma Williams, even if the circumstances of their lives that led them to that moment aren't necessarily fair. What's also true and also difficult to reconcile in the context of this case is that Ophelia Williams, Ronnell and Donnell's mother, is in fact a victim of Detective Roger Golubsky. And in all likelihood, Roger Golubsky used his proximity to helping solve the murder of Wilbur and Wilma, and the access this case provided him to target and victimize Ophelia Williams. Then he likely manipulated her with false promises of helping her sons to further victimize her. Tragically today, Ophelia's
0: allegations hold little legal power. In the state of Kansas, an adult has a two-year window to file a lawsuit over claims of sexual assault. That window has long since passed for crimes Ophelia says happened in 1999. And as we mentioned, Roger Golubsky was arrested in September of 2022 and charged with some of the crimes that he's been accused of. He's been charged with six counts of depriving two individuals of their civil rights, along with sexual assault, kidnapping and attempted kidnapping, aggravated sexual abuse and attempted aggravated sexual abuse to a previously filed indictment against Golubsky. Golubsky is also charged with protecting a notorious drug dealer who is running a sex trafficking operation of underage girls.
2: My God. Oh, I know. And this is just like the tip of the iceberg with this guy because additional charges include involuntary servitude of two teenagers who were held captive at an apartment complex and allegedly raped by the traffickers. Golubsky stands accused of helping. And he also stands accused of raping one of the girls who was 16 at the time. In following his arrest, Golubsky has attended several federal court hearings, but at the moment, he's on house arrest and no trial date has been set. Last month,
0: a now 71-year-old Golubsky had his attorney request a reprieve of his house arrest so he could be hospitalized citing his failing health. At earlier hearings, his attorney said that his client had heart bypass surgery in April of 2022, has diabetes, and failing kidneys. His victims fear that he may die or he may delay trial proceedings indefinitely, which would allow him to evade justice for
2: what he did to them. Another sad truth is that based on the kind of person Golubski appears to be, there may in fact be other people who were wrongfully convicted as a result of his corruption besides Lamonte McIntyre, who we talked about at the top of this episode. But the thing is, Ronnell and Donnell did not claim to be innocent, not back in 99, not when they spoke to Becca's cousins years later. Galoopsie could be a corrupt predator, allegedly. I mean, I, he hasn't been convicted, so I have to say allegedly. Probably is. And a dirty cop who victimized Ronell and Donnell's mother. Yes, predator, but sadly it doesn't necessarily undo what Ronell and Donnell did. Wilbur and Wilma's family received courtroom justice for their lives that were stolen. And the victims of Roger Galupski deserve justice, too. When Becca realized the depth of Galupski's corruption, she worried about how it could impact her grandparents' cases. Because as terrible as Galupski's actions towards Ophelia were, Donnell and Ronnell appear very much guilty for what happened to her grandparents. And Wilbur and Wilma definitely deserve justice for that.
1: I just remember him being a detective on the case and that I was, like, worried that this would put some kind of hold or some kind of, like, less sentencing for the boys. Like, it it was just a scare. A huge scare.
0: Golubski has pleaded not guilty to all of the charges, and he maintains his innocence. However, the number of people who have come forward with harrowing stories about Golubski that spanned his 35-year career suggests that he is a very bad man. And there's a good chance that he is, in fact, guilty of all of these things. Today, 39-year-old Ronnell Williams is incarcerated in the Hutchington Correctional Facility in Hutchington, Kansas. He continues to serve out his time there. And if he is let out at all, his earliest possible release date is August 8th of 2049, and he will be 64 years old then. However, behind bars, Ronnell isn't exactly on his best behavior. In fact, so far, he has racked up around 100 disciplinary reports for things like fighting, lying, and rioting.
2: 39-year-old Donnell Williams is also incarcerated in the Hutchinson Correctional Facility, which kind of seems like it shouldn't be allowed, but I guess good for them. Yeah. He may be in a different section of the same prison. It's unclear whether they have contact with one another. And according to the Kansas Department of Corrections, while Ronnell's security custody level is high medium, Donnell's is low medium. So maybe he's in a totally different building. We're not really sure.
0: Either way, Donnell's earliest release date is August 8th of 2024, and he'll be nearly 40 years old then. And it is hard to say if they're going to let him go because he also has about 50 disciplinary reports so far.
2: Obviously, this all kind of comes back to Becca and her experience. And without a doubt, she is still impacted by the murder of her grandparents. Being the one to discover the crime scene is something that has stuck with her and has caused immense trauma that she's had to work through. I was thinking about this today, like, you know, we didn't have a cell phone and we didn't call before
1: we went over and maybe it's just a little silly thing, but the thing that I always do is I make sure now that if I'm going over somewhere, I always make sure that they're there and I call right before because I just, in the back of your mind, you know, that's always there. And like, if I can't, you know, reach my mom, I'm like, where is she? Is everything okay? It's just, yeah, a lot of trauma and just trying to deal with all of that. I have a great support system, my mom's been my rock through it all, and I mean, she's been through a lot, too. I can't imagine, you know, how she felt and feels.
0: Because Donnell is eligible for parole next year, uh, that really concerns Becca. This is part of the reason why Becca has chosen to talk about her experience and her grandparents publicly for the first time.
1: I'm trying to open up and talk about it more because a lot of people just don't know. And I, I, I'm ready to like bring awareness of it and let everyone know about what happened. And you know, because the one is up for parole or he gets out in 2024, I know it's coming up soon. And I'm going to be the one that's going to have to be the
2: advocate for that and really push. If there is one thing we can learn from today's case, perhaps it's this: actions have consequences, and not just the consequences you can see. It's not always if X happens, Y will follow. It's more complex than that. One decision by one person can cause a never-ending ripple effect that could go on genuinely forever. Donnell and Ronald's actions will always impact Becca's life, her family's lives, the lives of every member of Wilma's church, the life of Wilbur and Wilma's favorite waitress at their local restaurant, their mailman, their mechanic, their next-door neighbor— people I can't even fathom were hurt by this unthinkable tragedy. And in the exact same way, Roger Galoopsi's actions will always impact Ophelia's life. And he was brought to the Williams home and encountered Ophelia because of what Ronell and Donnell did, right? Ripple effects. He's also impacted the lives of so many more women. And each person that these terrible actions affected, well, maybe those people are a little worse for wear now. Maybe they trust others a little bit less. Maybe they show a little less kindness. Trauma manifests itself in invisible, unknowable ways. And all we can do is try, try the best and the hardest that we can to ensure that our actions have good impacts, good ripple effects, that even as we try to navigate the negative actions of others, we always keep in our heads, keep in the forefront of our mind that we must try to do better.
0: a huge thank you to Becca for being our first degree guest for today's episode. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time over there. Join our Patreon. If you're looking for more first degree content and stick around tomorrow, we'll have a brand new episode of
2: killing time right in your feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close and not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by me and Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, Court Documents, Find a Grave, Kansas Department of Corrections, the Leavenworth Times, the Kansas City Times, the Iola Register, the Olathe Daily News, the Springfield News Leader, the Kansas Crime Index, CNN, and the Kansas City Star. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source.